Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome to Origins, a podcast encompassing stories concerning just about anything and everything. There is information, theories, news, stories, conjecture and ideas from history, geography, science, technology, language, medicine, archaeology, just about anything really. If you're interested in anything and everything, come along and listen and enjoy my show. Welcome to Origins, episode 39. This podcast is entitled Thin Ice, The Arctic Meltdown Explained. Other stories we'll be looking at in this podcast include The oldest church discovery is ridiculous, say critics. A clone cell cancer cure has been hailed and Mars's two-faced riddle has been solved. And from the New Scientist magazine, can parasites influence the language we speak? And changing your lifestyle can change your genes, according to an article from Newsweek. Colliding with nature's best-kept secrets. And chimps need hugs and kisses, just like us. And a mysterious Russian cement rain causes a hole in a Moscow house. And ten things they thought would never work. A photo of a great-grandfather of modern computers has been found. And why do we scream? Of course, there's the usual article from Word Origins, Australia Facts... And the world wide weird. Hmm. 
Today's lead article comes from the lifescience.com website, and it's written by Andrea Thompson. Thin ice. The Arctic meltdown explained. If the North Pole becomes ice-free this summer, the odds for that are 50 to 50, one scientist says. That doesn't mean that the whole Arctic region will become an open ocean. Mark Ceres of the US National Snow and Ice Data Centre in Colorado told The Independent, a London-based newspaper. I'd say it's even odds whether the North Pole melts out. The article posted on the newspaper's website on Friday generated some confusion as to what would actually happen at the North Pole and in the Arctic Ocean as a whole, as the summer melt season gears up in the next few weeks. In a telephone interview with Live Science, Cerise explained that a meltout at the North Pole wouldn't mean that all Arctic ice would melt. Rather, the thin newly formed ice around 90 degrees latitude could melt away for a few days. Such an event would be significant, he said, because any holes that have appeared in the ice at the North Pole up to now have been a result of winds pushing the sea ice around and creating cracks, not the melt-related processes that have taken hold in the Arctic in recent years. Usually, the North Pole is covered with thick, perennial ice that forms over several years. But during last summer's record melt, which opened up the fabled Northwest Passage, a substantial amount of older ice melted. Typically, only the thinner, first-year ice melts in summer, while the thick, perennial ice survives. Average sea ice extent at the end of the summer was 1.65 million square miles almost 30% lower than the previous record low. As winter cooled the Arctic waters, ice reformed over the ocean as it usually does. But this newly formed ice is thinner, first-year ice, more susceptible to melting once summer comes around again. As it happened, wind patterns and ocean currents over the last few months moved that newly formed ice smack over the North Pole setting up a situation where at least a temporarily ice-free North Pole could form. It's this symbolic thing, I think, Cerise told Life Science. This is where Santa Claus lives. It kind of hits you in the stomach. The North Pole isn't the only part of the Arctic Ocean covered with this newly formed ice. A substantial part of the region is capped by this thinner frozen veneer. That we're going to lose a bunch of ice is more or less certain, Cerise said, but... Just where that melt will occur is a roll of the dice. One factor affecting where and how much ice will melt this summer is the somewhat higher ice extent that refroze this winter. While the winter extent was higher this year than last year, it was still about 390,000 square miles, smaller than average. That's equal to an area about the size of Texas and New Mexico combined. Sea ice forms not by spreading out along the surface of the ocean, but rather as water just below the ice that freezes onto the underside of the ice. 
This means that more ice probably also means slightly thicker ice, said Josefino Comiso of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, which helps monitor sea ice coverage. Thicker ice is more likely to survive the summer and become second-year ice, becoming thicker still in winter. The North Pole is also cooler than lower Arctic levels, meaning North Pole ice could better resist melting. Even if it does, there's still the possibility that winds could move the ice around so that a hole formed at a lower latitude could be pushed over the North Pole, making it ice-free, Cerise said. It's these weather patterns that scientists will be watching in the coming weeks to get a better sense of what will happen in the Arctic this summer. Cerise says that a warm spring season has put melting on par with where it was at this point last year. But other scientists say this summer's melt is unlikely to be as spectacular as last year's. We may not see a record minimum at all, said Tharsten Marcus, also of Goddard. Scientists are monitoring the sea ice extent daily and say that after the main melt occurs over the next few weeks, they'll have a better idea of what the minimum extent, which typically occurs in mid-September, might be. For now, though, all they can do is wait and watch. NationalGeographic.com comes a story about the oldest church discovery. Ridiculous, critics say. Jordanian archaeologist announcement this week that he had uncovered the world's first Christian church in an underground cave drew surprise and scepticism from experts in Jordan and beyond. The Jordan Times earlier this week quoted archaeologist Abdel Kader al-Hussan, director of the Rehab Center for Archaeological Studies, as saying, We have uncovered what we believe to be the first church in the world, dating from 33 AD, to 70 AD. Al-Hussan later told the Associated Press that he had discovered a cave beneath St George's Church, one of the world's oldest known churches in the northern Jordanian city of Rehab, and the cave shows evidence of early Christian rituals. The archaeologist said he found a circular worship area inside the cave with stone seats separated from a living area that had a long tunnel leading to a source of water. Ghazi Bishay, former Director General of the Jordanian Department of Antiquities, dismissed the claim as ridiculous, 
saying the archaeologist behind them has a tendency to sensationalise discoveries and offered no evidence to back his recent assertion. There are numerous natural caves in Rehab and dozens of churches, but most of them date to the late 6th or early 7th century. Bichet believes that, based on the Basilican style of its mosaic, St George's Church dates to this period. But Al-Husan and some others believe St George's Church dates back to 230 AD. A mosaic on the floor of the church bears a Greek inscription that reads, the seventy beloved by God and the divine, according to Al-Husan. He believes it refers to seventy disciples who fled Roman persecution in Jerusalem during the first century AD, after the death of Jesus Christ. The disciples established a church in the cave and used it as a place of worship, according to Al-Husan. While early Christians did flee the Roman sack of Jerusalem in 70 AD to what is now Jordan, Bichet, the Jordanian antiquities expert, said the identity of the disciples mentioned in the mosaic is not clear. Scholars widely believe that organised churches didn't exist until at least the 3rd century AD. Following the death of Jesus Christ, Christian worship typically took place in homes and other domestic buildings, or, less commonly, by rivers outside city walls during the 1st century AD. Architecturally distinct, organised churches did not emerge until the Byzantine period in the 5th century AD. Early Christian churches would eventually include apses, semicircular sections of the sanctuary facing to the east, similar to Jewish synagogues which face towards Jerusalem. Al-Husan said there is an apse in the cave he uncovered. Biblical scholar Stephen Fan, president of the University of the Holy Land in Jerusalem, responded cautiously to Al-Husan's reported findings. It sounds rather acronistic, he said, adding that during the first century, the term church was used for assembled body of believers, not the building or catacombs where they were assembling. If they are talking about a cave, it could have been a hiding place. In time, if there were martyrs there, or something significant that took place there, or a well-known individual who was among the disciples of Jesus, then you would have had reason to commemorate the site, which could later be used by the church's monks. But the cave that's there is one that doesn't necessarily commemorate anything. I don't know how you can take an underground cave and say it could present itself as a first century church. Fan said the formal, architecturally distinct church form can be seen starting to emerge in a site excavated in 2005, inside an Israeli prison near Har-Megeddo, or Armageddon in Greek and English. Dating to roughly the 3rd century, it is popularly accepted as the oldest church ever discovered. Archaeologist Yotam Tepper of the Israeli Antiquities Authority excavated the Megiddo prison site. A house of prayer or domestic Christian gathering place from the 3rd century is quite possible, Tepper said. But a church from the 1st century sounds surprising indeed, though I don't know if I can entirely eliminate the possibility without seeing archaeological evidence like pottery and coins. I think that we will have to wait until we can see this, 
he added. And the following story comes from the news.bbc.co.uk website. A clone cell cancer cure has been hailed. Scientists claim they have cured advanced skin cancer for the first time, using the patient's own cells cloned outside the body. The 52-year-old man involved was free of melanoma two years after treatment. U.S. researchers, reports the New England Journal of Medicine, took cancer-fighting immune cells, made 5 billion copies, then put them all back. Scientists in the U.K. warned that further trials would need to be done to prove how well the treatment worked. The body's immune system plays a significant role in the battle against cancer, and doctors have been looking for ways to boost this tumour-killing response. The 52-year-old man had advanced melanoma, which had spread to the lungs and lymph nodes. Scientists at the Fred Hutchison Cancer Research Centre in Seattle concentrated on a type of immune system cell called a CD4 plus T-cell. From a sample of the man's white blood cells, they were able to select CD4 plus T-cells, which had been specifically primed to attack a chemical found on the surface of melanoma cells. These were then multiplied in the laboratory and put back in their billions to see if they could mount an effective attack on the tumours. Two months later, scans showed the tumours had disappeared, and after two years the man remained a disease-free. The new cells persisted in the body for months after the treatment. Whilst claiming this is a world first, the study authors pointed out that their technique applied only to a patient with a particular type of immune system and tumour type and could work for only a small percentage of people with advanced skin cancer. Dr Cassian Yi, who led the project, said, For this patient we were successful, but we would need to confirm the effectiveness of therapy in a larger study. Professor Carol Sikora, a cancer expert at Imperial College in London, described the research as pretty exciting, with potentially wide application. He said the researchers had focused on melanoma because the disease was well understood compared with other cancers. But other cancers could potentially be targeted. He said, I think we will be able to harness the power of the immune system. Eventually we will learn how to control cancer, in other words, we will suppress it. Patients will live with their cancer and die with their cancer, but not of their cancer. It will be like diabetes today. A spokesman for cancer research in the UK also said more research would be needed, adding, This is another interesting demonstration of the huge power of the immune system to fight some types of cancer. Although the technique is complex and difficult to use for all but a few patients, the principle that someone's own immune cells can be expanded and made to work in this way is very encouraging for the work that ourselves and others are carrying out in this field.
And from the bbc.co.uk website, Mars's two-faced riddle has been solved. The puzzle of why the northern and southern hemispheres of Mars look so different may now have been solved. Mars's crust is thicker in the southern hemisphere and magnetic anomalies are found in the south, but not the north. New studies in Nature magazine suggest that a massive space rock smashing into the planet could have created an abrupt disparity between the two halves. This asteroid would have been close to the size of Earth's moon and hit Mars's northern regions, scientists say. According to one group of researchers, the rock struck with an energy equivalent to one million billion atomic bombs, like the one dropped on Nagasaki in 1945. Mars's northern hemisphere is an enormous lowland basin which might have once held a mighty ocean. The southern hemisphere, on the other hand, comprises rugged, crater-pitted highlands with an altitude of up to 26,000 feet greater than the north. The new research suggests Mars bears the largest impact scar known anywhere in the solar system. It challenges an alternative theory which proposes that the two faces of Mars are the result of enormous volcanic disruption 3.8 billion years ago. The scientists on the latest work used data from two Mars-orbiting spacecraft, Reconnaissance Orbiter and Global Surveyor. Researchers led by Francis Nimmo at the University of California, Santa Cruz, carried out computer simulations to show that an impact with particular conditions could produce the present-day appearance of Mars. These conditions indicate a space rock about one-half to two-thirds the size of Earth's moon, striking the red planet at an angle of 30 to 60 degrees. This would have produced an elliptical crater. It's a very old idea, but nobody has done the numerical calculations to see what would happen when a big asteroid hit Mars, said the Associate Professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at UCSC. The team's findings are corroborated by another study in Nature, led by Oded Aronson, Associate Professor of Planetary Science at the California Institute of Technology, also in the United States. The dichotomy is arguably the oldest feature on Mars, Dr. Aronson explained. The feature arose more than four billion years ago before the rest of the planet's complex geological history was superimposed. This was about the same time that a much bigger object slammed into the Earth, throwing material into orbit around our infant planet. This material is thought to have coalesced to form the Moon. Indeed, the coincidence in timing of the formation of our Moon and the Mars dichotomy is probably not coincidental at all. It happened probably right at the end of the formation of the four terrestrial planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth and Mars, said Craig Agnor, a co-author on the Francis Nimmo study. He told BBC News, We think the planets formed out of a disk of rocks. 
As the rocks collide, you get bigger rocks and so on. Eventually you end up with four planets and a lot of rocks of various sizes. In terms of the process of the planet sweeping up the last bits of debris, this could have been one of the last big bits of debris. Shock waves from the impact would travel through the planet and disrupt the crust on the other side, causing changes in the magnetic field recorded there. The predicted changes are consistent with observations of magnetic anomalies in the southern hemisphere, according to Dr Nimmo. In a third study published in Nature, Geoffrey Andrews Hanna and Maria Zuba of MIT in Cambridge and Bruce Burnett of NASA's JPL in California provide impact evidence from gravitational and topographical signatures on Mars. Australia Facts and today we're looking at Kakadu National Park and this is in the format of a travel guide in case you ever get a chance to visit our country and visit Kakadu in Australia's Northern Territory. Lying 160 kilometres east of Darwin within the Alligator Rivers region of Australia's Northern Territory, Kakadu National Park is the second largest national park in the world and one of the country's most famous natural attractions. The park covers some 20,000 square kilometres and is well known for its amazing biodiversity as well as its rich indigenous cultural heritage. Nature is the most obvious appeal of the park with its unique ecosystem supporting a vast selection of plants and animals as well as attracting thousands of migratory birds of different species during its two main seasons. Animal and bird watching are popular pursuits with many visitors and require no previous knowledge of wildlife to be enjoyed. After nature, the park's Aboriginal heritage is its biggest appeal. As a home to Indigenous people for around 40,000 years, the park offers visitors a chance to step into this tribal man's territory. Aborigines continue to live within the park, following long-held ways of life and traditions. The visual evidence of their past in the numerous rock paintings around the park is fascinating, and sites at Nangalwur, Nuralangi and Ubir offer interesting insight. There are countless outdoor activities that can be pursued within the park, from forest walks to boat trips or even golf. Kakadu is the ideal destination for lovers of the great outdoors. Whether you experience the park through organised tours or embrace it completely with days spent camping, trekking in the bush and swimming in natural rock pools, it's likely to be a magical experience either way. The park is a World Heritage Site in fact, UNESCO has given it two listings, such as its natural, cultural and historical value. 
One result of this status is that development within the park is strictly controlled, so there is limited infrastructure. The small town of Jabiru is the main municipal centre and provides comfortable accommodation for visitors. Limited facilities can also be found at Kuinda and South Alligator. Kakadu is reached relatively easily. How you choose to get there will be based on the intended length and nature of your stay. Many visitors fly into Darwin International Airport then make their journey onward by road in a rental vehicle. Alternatively, you can take one of the many tours that are available from Darwin. Organised tours are generally by coach, but there are also luxury tours to the park from Darwin by small plane. Now, being in the Northern Territory, which is in the north of Australia and in the tropical regions, weather plays an important role if you're intending to visit this area. Now, Kakadu's climate is monsoonal in nature, and the region experiences only two distinct seasons, the wet and dry seasons. Transitional states between the two are indistinct. The dry season lasts from late April or early May until September, and is characterised by high temperatures, low humidity and little or no rainfall. Temperatures at the height of the season, June to July, are typically in the low 30s, that's degrees centigrade. From October to December, as the climate moves towards the wet season, temperatures increase with highs of up to 37 degrees centigrade. Humidity is also high and electrical storms are common at the time. The wet season arrives in January and lasts until late March or early April and is characterised by a combination of high temperatures and frequent and heavy rain. Temperature highs reach the low 30s and volumes of rainfall can vary from between 1,300mm and 1,500mm depending upon the location. From a visitor's perspective, the dry season is perhaps the best time to make a trip to Kakadu National Park. A visit during the wet season shouldn't be ruled out, however, as rainfall is only sporadic, flora is greener and the waterfalls are considerably more impressive. And just a couple of notes from my personal experience with Kakadu National Park. I've been there a few times myself. It is a beautiful place and the summer is extremely hot and extremely humid, where the dry season is probably the best time to go, just remembering that the seasons in Australia are reversed to those in the Northern Hemisphere. Also, the Australian landmass is almost the same size as the continental US, excluding Alaska, so just be aware that there are vast distances involved in travel in Australia. The Alligator River and the South Alligator Township were named by someone who thought that the crocodiles in the river were actually alligators. We don't have alligators in Australia. We have crocodiles, the freshwater and the saltwater variety. The saltwater being large and quite fierce, so you don't want to get tangled with those. So swimming in the saltwater isn't advised in these places, but uh, there are plenty of rock pools and things that you can swim in that are freshwater that are not worried by the crocodiles. Anyway, the guides in the park and signs and things will advise you as to what's the safest approach if you ever get a chance to visit. And coming up in a few moments is a story from the NewScientist.com website, and it's by Catherine Brahik. Can parasites influence the language we speak? Mm -hmm. 
What do parasites and mountains have in common? They both keep populations apart and drive evolution, say researchers. In the absence of geographical barriers such as mountains and oceans, parasite wedges keep populations of the same species apart, says Corey Fincher and Randy Thornhill of the University of New Mexico in the US. They claim this can provide the opportunity for populations and even new languages to evolve separately. Fincher and Thornhill say their hypothesis explains the long-standing ecological debate about why it is that biological diversity decreases as you move away from the equator and towards the poles. Individuals must balance the benefits with the costs of contacting other members of the same species, says Fincher. For humans, interacting with each other, for example, benefits include the opportunity to mate and trade. But these come at a cost, the risk of contracting a parasite or disease. These costly interactions especially come from interacting with people who do not belong to your society or group, whose immune systems are adapted for a separate set of parasites than your own, adds Fincher. The notion was first suggested in the 1970s by researchers who noticed that baboon populations living in the African savanna typically carried similar populations of bacterial fauna and would frequently interact. In the rainforests, however, where each population tended to carry its own set of bacteria, primates typically interacted far less. In the parasite-rich forest populations, interacting with others came with a high chance of contracting a lethal illness, making parasites an evolutionary driving force. According to Fincher and Thornhill, similar situations can be found in human populations. Taking languages as their measure of diversity, the pair looked at the concentration of different languages within an area and the number of parasites in that same area. They collected data on parasites and languages around the world and found that the diversity of indigenous human languages is correlated with the diversity of human disease-carrying parasites. The correlation was true on every continent, and independent of historical context such as colonialism. Mark Pagel, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Reading in the UK, says the correlation is interesting but insufficient. Fincher and Thornhill did not divide the world by linguistic region, but into six large continents. This means they do not have enough detail to link differences in parasite infections with different languages, Pagel says. However, he adds that linguistic diversity does increase as you move from north to south in North America and the pattern is the same worldwide, mirroring the increase in biodiversity as you move to the tropics. But rather than parasites driving linguistic diversity, Pagel believes the explanation lies in an intrinsic human tendency to wage war. I believe humans will separate and split whenever they can, Pagel told New Scientist. You've got all these people wandering around the Amazon, all doing more or less the same thing, hunting and gathering. So why do they all speak different languages? There must be some ecological force driving them to live in separate groups. We are intensely competitive, and when the environment will support a small group living separately, I believe humans will do that, he says. 
In ecologically poor environments, humans and other animals need to range further in order to find food and will inevitably bump into each other and mix. But in ecologically rich areas such as Papua New Guinea, villages that are just a few kilometres apart speak different languages. To Pagel, this proves that populations that do not need to interact to survive won't. I think this is a great dark secret about humans, he adds. And now, a word origins. The word rhubarb. How did a vegetable become baseball slang for an argument or fight? A rhubarb is baseball slang for a fight or argument among players and or umpires. We do know that the term was popularised by famed baseball broadcaster Red Barber. But how rhubarbs became associated with altercations is not known with any certainty, but there are several explanations that merit mention. The word rhubarb was used by radio actors to imitate the sounds of raucous crowds. The actors would murmur rhubarb rhubarb in the background to simulate crowd noise. From radio plays to sports broadcasting is a short leap. Sports writer Gary Shoemaker may have coined the term in 1938. Shoemaker claimed to like the term because it suggested an untidy mess a dishevelled tangle of loose ends like the fibres of stewed rhubarb. Shoemaker claimed to have used it in the press box of a Dodgers-Reds game and Barber overheard and subsequently used it on the radio. Rhubarb was often used as a purgative and mothers would force their children to eat several doses a day. Children in the Greepoint section of Brooklyn were often sent outside with rhubarb sandwiches which became missiles and weapons in fights. The acting use of rhubarb is recorded from 1934, from Alan P. Herbert's Holy Deadlock of that year. The chorus excitedly rushed about and muttered, Rhubarb! The baseball use is attested to from 1943, from Baseball Magazine of January of that year. A rhubarb which has become Brooklynese for a heated verbal run-in, especially between players and umpires. On the 13th of July of that same year, the New York Herald Tribune cites Barber using the term. Mr. Red Barber, who has been announcing the games of the Brooklyn Dodgers, has used the term rhubarb to describe an argument or a mix-up on the field of play. Rhubarb was also World War II fighter pilot slang for a strafing mission. Whether this comes from Brooklyn-born fighter pilots who had heard Barber use the term or from other possible sources is not known. From Time magazine on 22nd of March 1943. When a fighter pilot flies low over France, strafing whatever he finds, trains, troops, airdromes, he is on a rhubarb.
And the following story comes from the www.newsweek.com website and it's written by Dean Ornish. Changing your lifestyle can change your genes. Here's some very good news. Your genes are not your destiny. Earlier this week, my colleagues and I published the first study showing that improved nutrition, stress management techniques, walking and psychosocial support actually changed the expression of over 500 genes in men with early stage prostate cancer. This study was conducted at the non-profit Preventative Medicine Research Institute and the University of California, San Francisco, in collaboration with Dr. Peter Carroll, Dr. Mark Magbuanua and Dr. Chris Hark and others. In this study, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, we studied gene expression in biopsies from 30 men who were diagnosed with low-risk prostate cancer. These men had decided not to undergo conventional treatments, such as surgery, radiation or chemotherapy, for reasons unrelated to the study. They had early, small-volume prostate cancer with stable prostate-specific antigen, or PSA, levels, and Gleason scores of 6 or less, meaning that their tumours were not aggressive. We biopsied their prostates at the beginning of the study, and again three months later, after making comprehensive lifestyle changes. Since these patients did not have conventional treatments during this time, it enabled us to assess the effects of the lifestyle changes on gene expression without confounding interventions such as surgery, radiation or chemotherapy. The changes included a plant-based diet, predominant fruits, vegetables, legumes, soy products and whole grains, low in refined carbohydrates, moderate exercise, walking 30 minutes per day, stress management techniques, yoga-based stretching, breathing techniques, meditation and guided imagery for one hour per day, and participating in a weekly one-hour support group. The diet was supplemented with soy, fish oil of 3 grams per day, vitamin E, 100 units per day, selenium, 200 milligrams per day, and vitamin C, 2 grams per day. These lifestyle changes are described more fully in his book called The Spectrum. After three months, we repeated the biopsy and looked at the changes in normal tissue within the prostate. We found that many disease-promoting genes, including those associated with cancer, heart disease and inflammation, were down-regulated or turned off, whereas protective, disease-preventing genes were upregulated or turned on. For example, a set of cancer-promoting oncogenes called RAS was down-regulated in these men. The selectin E gene, which promotes inflammation and is elevated in breast cancer, was down-regulated. Another gene that suppresses tumour formation, called SFRP, was upregulated, thereby reducing the risk of cancer. These genes are the target of many new drugs that are being developed. Clearly, changing lifestyle is less expensive, and the only side effects are good ones. 
Dr. Craig Venter's pioneering research is showing that one way to change your genes is to synthesize new ones. Another may be to change your lifestyle. The figure here, and if you go to the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to this article, there is a link on the word here, provides a graphic representation of some of the changes in gene expression. Each line represents one of 31 genes that regulate intracellular protein traffic, which affects how cells communicate with each other. The green colour represents genes that are down-regulated or turned off, and the red colour represents genes that are up-regulated or turned on. As you can see, there are a lot more green or turned off genes on the right side of the figure than on the left side. For the past 31 years, I have directed a series of research studies showing that changes in lifestyle can make a powerful difference in our health and well-being, and how quickly these changes may occur. We showed that comprehensive lifestyle changes may stop or reverse the progression of coronary heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, obesity, hypercholesterolemia and other chronic conditions. Two years ago, along with Dr. Carroll, the Chair of Urology at UCSF, and others who also collaborated on the new gene expression study, we published the first randomised controlled trial, showing that these lifestyle changes may slow, stop, or even reverse the progression of prostate cancer, which may affect breast cancer as well. When we published our earlier studies, we didn't understand many of the mechanisms by which these changes may have occurred. Now our new study is beginning to provide some insight into what some of these genetic mechanisms may be. Because we looked at normal tissue within the prostate, rather than the prostate tumour cells, it is likely that our findings may be generalised beyond men with prostate cancer. Also, People who are otherwise healthy may not need to make such intensive changes and have a spectrum of choices. We are still trying to understand the full significance of these findings. We raised more questions than we've answered and we need larger, longer-term studies. But it's already clear that you may be able to alter, at least to some degree, how your genes are expressed simply by changing your diet and lifestyle. I find this to be a profoundly hopeful message. Often I hear people say, Oh, I've got bad genes, there's nothing I can do about it, displaying what I call genetic nihilism. Our findings, the first to show the effect of lifestyle changes on any kind of cancer genes, can be an antidote to genetic nihilism and, I hope, motivate people to begin making their own changes. In most cases, our genes are only a predisposition they are not written in stone. And if we have a strong family history for diseases such as prostate cancer, breast cancer or heart disease, bad genes, then we may need to make bigger changes in lifestyle in order to help prevent or even reverse chronic diseases. In the centuries-old debate about nature versus nurture, we are learning that nurture affects nature as much as nature affects nurture. It's not all in our genes.
Well, now that you're all awake again, the following story comes from the www.telegraph.co.uk website, and it's entitled, Science, Why We Scream. Apes play a key role in human evolution, but our facial muscles also have a story to tell, says Roger Highfield. It is a familiar scene from countless horror films. The heroine, eyes wide and mouth gaping, prepares to scream as the killer approaches. But now scientists have discovered that, in doing so, she is obeying not the dictates of her director, but the laws of evolution. The reason for this is that our facial expressions have a purpose. Even if there is nothing scary around, pulling a scared face will make you more alert. Similarly, the disgusted face we make when we encounter a bad smell is designed to cut out the offensive odour. The idea that the faces we make at times of high emotion did not evolve randomly, but have some evolutionary benefit, was first proposed by Charles Darwin. If they boosted our chances of surviving, he thought, they would be selected for in the gene pool. This explains why everyone, from a city trader in London to a hunter-gatherer in Africa, uses the same expression when frightened. Whether they're from Toronto or Papua New Guinea, people raise their eyebrows and eyelids during fear, or raise their upper lips and wrinkle their noses during disgust, said Dr Adam Anderson of the University of Toronto. His study, written with Joshua Siskind and other colleagues, has been published in the journal Nature Neuroscience. As we reported yesterday, it found that people asked to make frightened expressions had a wider range of vision, faster eye movements and an increased sense of smell as they breathed more rapidly through their nostrils. Those making the opposite expression of disgust, with eyes and mouth scrunched up rather than widened, had a smaller range of vision and a decrease in nasal volume, meaning that they saw and smelt less of what had offended them. The discovery comes in the wake of the suggestion by William James, the pioneering philosopher and psychologist, that making a particular face contributes to feeling the related emotion. Moving your face into certain configurations changes the blood flow to the brain and the way you feel. So smiling, for example, helps to make you happy. But in another recent study, a scientist at the University of Portsmouth questioned the idea that all facial expressions are universal. Strangely, Dr Bridget Waller and anatomists at two universities in Pittsburgh reported in the American Psychological Association journal that the facial muscles that control our expressions are not common to everyone. We all have a core set of five facial muscles that control our ability to produce standard expressions which convey anger, happiness, surprise, fear, sadness and disgust. But there are up to 19 muscles present in the face and many people do not possess them all. The risorius muscle which controls expressions of extreme fear is found in only two-thirds of people. Everyone communicates using a set of common signals, says Dr Waller, so we would expect to find that the muscles do not vary. The results are surprising. Some less common facial expressions may be unique to certain people. In other words, while we all know instinctively how to look afraid, not all of us can do it quite as expressively as in the movies.
and today's little mystery comes from the www.environmentalgraffiti.com website. Mysterious Russian cement rain causes hole in Moscow house. Last Tuesday, seemingly out of nowhere, a huge lump of cement hurling from the sky crashed through a suburban Moscow home, creating a large hole. But what was the cause? Why, it was the Russian Air Force attempting to change the weather, of course. Yes, the relatively common practice of cloud seeding ended in an unfortunate yet hilarious example of how sometimes we shouldn't mess with the weather. The Russians have been using cloud seeding as a way to prevent rainy weather during important national holidays. On June 12th, the Russian Air Force sent up 12 planes carrying silver iodide, liquid nitrogen and cement powder to seed clouds above Moscow and empty the skies of moisture. A pack of cement used in creating good weather in the capital region failed to pulverise completely at high altitude and fell on the roof of a house, making a hole about two and a half to three feet, police in Naro for Minsk told agency RIA Novosti. Weather specialists said this is the first time in 20 years that this has occurred. The homeowner was not injured, but their pride was. They refused a $2,100 offer from the Air Force to fix the damage. But the homeowner declined and stated she would sue for damages and compensation of moral suffering instead. This wasn't the first time that cloud seeding failed in some way. In 2006, during the G8 summit in Russia, Russian President Vladimir Putin dispatched fighter jets to seed the skies over St. Petersburg so that it wouldn't rain on the city. Putin was hoping that the seeding would push the rain towards Finland instead. Yet alas, the G8 summit was drenched anyway. Organisers showed their lack of confidence by supplying raincoats beforehand, which proved popular when the rain came pouring down. The United States also uses cloud seeding to increase precipitation in areas experiencing drought, to reduce the size of hailstones that form in thunderstorms, and to reduce the amount of fog in and around airports. Several countries have looked at cloud seeding as a way to increase snowfall on mountain ranges so that ski seasons can become more sustainable. Silver iodide can cause temporary incapacitation or possible residual injury, for example chloroform, with intense or continued but not chronic exposure. However, studies by Sierra Nevada of California have shown that the exposure to silver iodide from cloud seeding is less dangerous than exposure from tooth fillings. Notwithstanding this, cloud seeding can be dangerous in other ways. The US Air Force proposed its use on the battlefield in 1996, although the US signed an international treaty in 1978 banning the use of weather modification for hostile purposes. After the Chernobyl disaster, Russian military pilots seeded clouds over Belarus to remove radioactive particles from clouds heading towards Moscow. So while the current environmental impact is limited, cloud seeding can be used as a hostile measure. 
While this method has proved successful in various roles, we should acknowledge that areas that would normally be receiving precipitation won't because of man-made weather patterns. Using cloud seeding to increase precipitation in usually arid environments can change ecosystems and cause damage to the local habitat for a number of animals. While it is nice to spend the day outside in the sun, we also need those dreaded rainy days as well. I'd rather it rain water than cement on my house. How about you? Randolph E. Schmid, writing for the msnbc.com website, has an article entitled Chimps Need Hugs and Kisses Just Like Us. Washington. For most folks, a nice hug and some sympathy can help a bit after we get pushed around. Turns out chimpanzees use hugs and kisses the same way. And it works. Researchers studying people's closest genetic relatives found that stress was reduced in chimps that were victims of aggression if a third chimp stepped in to offer consolation. Consolation usually took the form of a kiss or embrace, said Dr. Orloff N. Fraser of the Research Centre in Evolutionary Anthropology and Paleoecology at Liverpool John Moores University in England. This is particularly interesting, she said, because this behaviour is rarely seen other than after a conflict. If a kiss was used, the consoler would press his or her open mouth against the recipient's body, usually on top of their head or their back. An embrace consisted of the consoler wrapping one or both arms around the recipient. The result was a reduction of stress behaviour, such as scratching or self-grooming by the victim of aggression, Fraser and colleagues reported in Tuesday's edition of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Dr Franz de Waal of the Yerkes Primate Centre at Emory University in Atlanta said the study is important because it shows the relationship between consolation and stress reduction. Previous researchers have claimed that consolation has no effect on stress, said DeWall, who was not part of Fraser's research team. This study removes doubt that consolation really does what the term suggests, provide relief to distressed parties after conflict. The evidence is compelling and makes it likely that consolation behaviour is an expression of empathy, DeWall said. DeWall suggested that this evidence of empathy in apes is perhaps equivalent to what in human children is called sympathetic concern. That behaviour in children includes touching and hugging of distressed family members, and is in fact identical to that of apes, and so the comparison is not far-fetched, he said. While chimps show this empathy, monkeys do not, he added. There is also suggestive evidence of such behaviour in large-brained birds and dogs, said Fraser, but it has not yet shown that it reduces stress levels in those animals. Previous research on conflict among chimps concentrated on cases where there is reconciliation between victim and aggressor, with little attention to intervention by a third party. Fraser and colleagues studied a group of chimps at the Chester Zoo in England from January 2005 to September 2006, recording instances of aggression such as a bite, hit, 
rush, trample, chase or threat. The results show that chimpanzees calm distressed recipients of aggression by consoling them with a friendly gesture, Fraser said. Consolation was most likely to occur between chimpanzees who already had valuable relationships, she added. The following article comes from the www.nullhypothesis.co.uk website and it's entitled, It'll Never Work. In the light of the claim that inflatable cars are set to become the vehicle of the future, the Null has found a long and distinguished list of inventions that were poo-pooed by esteemed individuals, only for the product to become a raging success. Shame on you all. Radio and Television While theoretically and technically television may be feasible, commercially and financially I consider it an impossibility, a development of which we need waste little time dreaming. And that's by Lee DeForest, American Radio Pioneer, 1926. Television won't be able to hold on to any market it captures after the first six months. People will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. And that's from Daryl F. Zanuck, head of 20th Century Fox, 1946. Radio has no future. And that's from Lord Kelvin, British mathematician and physicist. Communication. The telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a practical form of communication. The device is inherently of no value to us. A Western Union Internal Memo, 1878. Well-informed people know it is impossible to transmit the voice over wires, and that were it possible to do so, the thing would be of no practical value. And that's from an editorial in the Boston Post in 1865. Transport. No possible combination of known substances, known forms of machinery and known forms of force can be united in a practical machine by which man shall fly long distances through the air. That's by Simon Newcomb, 1835 to 1909, astronomer and head of the US Naval Observatory. What can be more palpably absurd than the prospect held out of locomotives travelling twice as fast as stagecoaches? And that's from the Quarterly Review in England in March of 1825. Heavier than air flying machines are impossible. Ah, another quote by Lord Kelvin, British mathematician and physicist. Rail travel at high speed is not possible because passengers, unable to breathe, would die of asphyxia. 
by Dr. Dionysus Lardner, 1793-1859, Professor of Natural Philosophy and Astronomy. Airplanes are interesting toys but of no military value. Marshal Ferdinand Foch, French military strategist and World War I commander. It is an idle dream to imagine that automobiles will take the place of railways in the long-distance movement of passengers. The American Railroad Congress in 1913. Men might as well project a voyage to the moon as attempt to employ steam navigation against the stormy North Atlantic Ocean. And another one for Dr. Dionysus Lardner, Professor of Natural Philosophy and Astronomy. Computers. There is no reason for any individual to have a computer in their home. And that's by Ken Olson, President of Digital Corporation, 1977. The internet will catastrophically collapse in 1996. That's Robert Metcalf, the internet inventor. Computers in the future may weigh no more than one and a half tons. Popular Mechanics, 1949. We have reached the limits of what is possible with computers. John von Neumann, 1949. I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. And that understatement was made by Thomas J. Watson Sr., IBM Chairman, 1943. Space Exploration there is no hope for the fanciful idea of reaching the moon because of insurmountable barriers to escaping the Earth's gravity. Dr. Forrest Ray Moulton, University of Chicago Astronomer, 1932. To place a man in a multi-stage rocket and project him into the controlling gravitational field of the moon, where the passengers can make scientific observations and perhaps land alive and then return to Earth all that constitutes a wild dream worthy of Jules Verne. I am bold enough to say that such a man-made voyage will never occur, regardless of all future advances. Lee DeForest, American Radio Pioneer, 1926. Medicine and Health The abdomen, the chest and the brain will forever be shut from the intrusion of the wise and humane surgeon. Sir John Eric Erickson, Surgeon to Queen Victoria, 1873. Louis Pasteur's theory of germs is a ridiculous fiction. Pierre Pachet, Professor Physiology, Toulouse, 1872. The abolishment of pain in surgery is a chimera. It is absurd to go on seeking it. Knife and pain are two words in surgery that must forever be associated in the consciousness of the patient. Dr. Alfred Velpeau, 1839, French surgeon. There is growing evidence that smoking has pharmacological effects that are of real value to smokers. President of Philip Morris, 1962. Your cigarettes will never become popular. F.G. Alton, 1870, cigar maker, turning down Mr. John Player. Nuclear power. Anyone who expects a source of power from the transformation of these atoms is talking moonshine. Ernest Rutherford, 1933. 
There is no likelihood man can ever tap the power of the atom. The glib supposition of utilising atomic energy when our coal has run out is a completely unscientific utopian dream, a childish bugaboo. Nature has introduced a few foolproof devices into the great majority of elements that constitute the bulk of the world, and they have no energy to give up in the process of disintegration. Robert A. Millilkin 1863 to 1953, in a speech to the Chemists Club in New York. There is not the slightest indication that nuclear energy will ever be obtainable. It would mean that the atom would have to be shattered at will. Albert Einstein, 1932. All the waste in a year from a nuclear power plant can be stored under a desk. Ronald Reagan. 1980. General Science With regard to the electric light, much has been said for and against it, but I think I may say without contradiction that when the Paris exhibition closes, electric light will close with it, and no more will be heard of it. Erasmus Wilson, Oxford University Professor, 1878 I am tired of all this thing called science. We have spent millions in that sort of thing for the last few years, and it is time it should be stopped. Simon Cameron, US Senator from Pennsylvania, 1861, demanding the funding of the Smithsonian Institution be cut off. The so-called theories of Einstein are merely the ravings of a mind polluted with liberal, democratic nonsense, which is utterly unacceptable to German men of science. Dr. Walter Gross, 1940. There is a young madman proposing to light the streets of London. With what do you suppose? With smoke? Sir Walter Scott, 1771 to 1832, on a proposal to light cities with gaslight. Approximately 80% of our air pollution stems from hydrocarbons released by vegetation. So, let's not go overboard in setting and enforcing tough emission standards for man-made sources. Ronald Reagan, 1980 I see no good reasons why the views given in this volume should shock the religious feelings of anyone. Darwin, writing in Origins of Species, 1859 The machine gun is a much overrated weapon. Two per battalion is more than sufficient. General Douglas Haig, 1915. And from our Lord Kelvin again, around about 1900. X-rays are a hoax. And moving on to things that were never supposed to take off, computers. From the telegraph.co.uk website comes an article by Roger Highfield. A photo of a great-grandfather of modern computers has been found. This is the first known photograph of the great-grandfather of modern digital computers. A room-sized one-ton jumble of wiring, valves and racks that was 64 million times less powerful than its descendant the pocket-sized iPod, 
And if you go to the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to this article, you'll be able to see the photograph of this uh, baby computer. Hmm. The panoramic black and white image, which has been unearthed in the archives at the University of Manchester, shows a development version of the baby, also known as the small-scale experimental machine. The baby was the first machine that had all the components now classically regarded as characteristic of the basic computer. Most importantly, it was the first computer that could store not only data, but any user program in electronic memory, and process it at electronic speed. Baby made its first successful run of a program on June 21, 1948. Built and designed by Tom Kilburn and Freddie Williams at the University of Manchester, it was the first electronic digital computer capable of storing a program. There are no actual photographs of the original baby from June 1948. The panoramic image actually shows an intermediate stage, beginning to resemble the later University Mark I computer. The panoramic view of the machine was first published in the Illustrated London News in June 1949 and is actually a composite view made up of about 24 separate photographs taken by one of the project team, Alec Robinson. An entry in his notebook showed that they were taken on the 15th of December 1948. Instead of a screen, the output was read directly off a cathode ray tube or CRT as we know it. In modern terms, the prototype baby had a random access memory or RAM of just 32 locations or words. Each word in the RAM consisted of 32 bits or binary digits, and so the baby had a grand total of 1024 bits of memory and a computing speed of 1.2 milliseconds per instructions. That is less power than a modern calculator. Manchester, Cambridge and institutions in the United States all battled to build a first stored program computer, but Manchester won the race, a feat that placed the city at the forefront of a global technological revolution. On Friday the 20th of June 2008, the University and the City of Manchester celebrated the 60th anniversary with Digital 60 Day. And from the edition.cnn.com website comes the story Colliding with Nature's Best Kept Secrets and it's written by Elizabeth Landau. Visiting a particle accelerator is like a religious experience, at least for Nima Akani Hamed. Immense detectors surround the areas where inconceivably small particles slam into one another at super-high energies, collisions that may confirm Arkani Hamed's predictions about undiscovered properties of nature. Arkani Hamed is only in his mid-thirties, but he has distinguished himself as one of the leading thinkers in the field of particle physics. His revolutionary ideas about the way the universe works will finally be put to the test this year at Switzerland's Large Hadron Collider, which will be the world's most powerful particle accelerator. The accelerator, estimated to cost between $5 to $10 billion, could provide answers to questions physics have had for decades. Thousands of scientists from around the world are collaborating on the project at the European Organisation for Nuclear Research, or better known as CERN. 
If the results confirm any of Arkani Hamid's predictions, they would be the first extension of our notions of space-time since Albert Einstein. We're essentially guaranteed that there's going to be something surprising, Arkani Ahmed said of the Large Hadron Collider, which will operate inside a 17-mile circular tunnel. Regarded as a gem, Arkani Ahmed is opening our minds and creating a new world of ideas that challenge deep-grained preconceptions about space-time, said Chris Tully, professor of physics at Princeton University, who was working on the compact muon solenoid experiment at the Large Hadron Collider. From the point of view of the big experiments at the LHC, there is no amount of money or craftsmanship that would produce the kind of insight that comes from sharing LHC data with a true visionary like Nima Akani Ahmed, Tully said. Formerly a professor at Harvard, Akani Ahmed currently sits on the faculty at the prestigious Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, where Einstein served from 1933 until his death in 1955. He was lured from Harvard to the IAS. I'm sure that's considered quite a coup, said Daniel Marlowe, a physics professor at Princeton who is also collaborating on the CMS experiment. Arkani Hamed has had a hand in explaining how the world can operate according to Einstein's theory of general relativity, which describes the universe on a very large scale, and at the same time follow quantum mechanics, laws that describe the universe on a scale smaller than the eye can see. Some of the key mysteries that stem from these clashing theories include why gravity is so weak relative to the other fundamental physical forces, such as electromagnetism, and why the universe is so large. These issues come up because on an inconceivably small scale, the particles that make up our world seem to behave completely differently than one might imagine. For example, if you are driving a car, your GPS tells you where you are, and your speedometer tells you how fast you are moving. But on the scale of particles like electrons, it is impossible to know both position and speed at once. The very act of trying to find out requires incredible amounts of energy. If it takes so much energy just to try and pin a particle down, then, in theory, all particles should have temporary energy changes around them called quantum fluctuations. This energy translates into mass, since Einstein famously said that mass and energy are interchangeable through the equation E equals mc squared. It makes it extremely mysterious that the electron, or indeed everything else that we know and love and are made of, isn't incredibly more massive than it is, Arkani Hamed said. A theory that has emerged in recent decades that claims to bring some relief to physics mysteries like these is called superstring theory, or string theory for short. Previously, scientists believed that the smallest, most indivisible building blocks of our world were particles. But string theory says the world is made of extremely small vibrating loops, called strings. In order for these strings to properly constitute our universe, they must vibrate in 11 dimensions, scientists say. Everyone observes three spatial dimensions and one for time. But theoretical models suggest at least seven others that we do not see. 
Akani Hamid proposed, along with others, that some of these dimensions are larger than previously thought, specifically as large as a millimetre. Physicists call this the ADD model, after the first initials of the author's last names. We haven't seen these extra dimensions because gravity is the only force that can wander around them, Akani Hamed said. String theory has come under attack because some say it can never be tested. The strings are supposed to be smaller than any particle ever detected after all. But Akani Hamed says the Large Hadron Collider could lead to the direct observation of strings, or at least indirect evidence of their existence. In fact, by slamming particles into one another, the Large Hadron Collider may detect particles slipping in and out of the dimensions that Arkani Hamed has worked on describing. Particle collisions should begin at the Large Hadron Collider in August or September, according to the US LHC website. Evidence of theories such as the ADD model could be discovered by 2009, Marlowe said. Data reflecting Arkani Ahmed's work on large extra dimensions would really provide the first confirmation in this very profound way we might think about nature, Marlowe said. Arkani Ahmed always had a great love of the natural world as a child. Though his parents are also physicists, he considers it his act of teenage rebellion to become one too, as his mother wanted him to become a doctor. He remembers being impressed at age 14 that Newton's laws could enable him to calculate such things as the minimum speed that a space shuttle had to attain to escape the Earth's gravitational field. He wondered whether scientists had reached the figure of 11 kilometres per second by trial and error, shooting things in the air until the right speed emerged, until he could calculate it himself. When I figured out how to do that for myself, I just thought it was just the coolest thing. That little old me, scratching away on my piece of paper, could figure this out, he said. From about 13 or 14, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. And continuing our Panati's Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things storylines, this one's entitled Four Leaf Clover, 200 BC, British Isles. More than any other factor, the rarity of the four-leaf clover, normally the clover is a three-leaf plant, made it sacred to the sun-worshipping Druid priests of ancient England. The Druids, whose Celtic name, Druid, means oak-wise or knowing the oak tree, frequented oak forests as worshipping grounds. They believed that a person in possession of a four-leaf clover could sight ambient demons and through incantations thwart their sinister influence. Our information on the origin of this good luck charm 
as well as on other beliefs and behaviours of that learned class of Celts who acted as priests, teachers and judges, comes mainly from the writings of Julius Caesar and from Irish legend. Several times a year, Druids assembled in sacred oak forests throughout the British Isles and Gaul. There they settled legal disputes and offered human sacrifices for any person who was gravely ill or in danger of death from forthcoming battle. Huge wicker cages filled with men were burned. Though Druid priests preferred to sacrifice criminals, during periods of widespread law and order they incinerated the innocent. The immortality of the soul and its transferal after death to a newborn was one of their principal religious doctrines. Before terminating the forest ritual, Druids collected sprigs of mistletoe, believed to be capable of maintaining harmony within families, and scouted for rare clover. Four-leaf clovers are no longer rare. In the 1950s, horticulturalists developed a seed that sprouts only clover with four lobes. The fact that today they are grown in greenhouses by the millions and cultivated by the score on kitchen windowsills not only strips the tiny herb of the uniqueness that is its luck but usurps the thrill and serendipity of finding one. And some feedback about our podcast. And this comes from the podcastalley.com website. And it's by Andrew McMorrow. Good stuff. This podcast is excellent. Very informative and scientific. I particularly like the segments about archaeology. Well, thanks, Andrew, for your feedback. It's much appreciated. And remember, if you'd like to provide feedback, you can do it through my email address, paulrex at paulrex.com, or through places like Podcast Alley or iTunes. I will try to locate any feedback about the podcast. Uh, If I happen to miss out and you have given me some, please email and let me know where it is. I do look hard for it, though, because I really appreciate feedback. I'm broadcasting.
And of course it's time for the Worldwide Weird. Story number one. A drunk Swede tries to row home. A drunken 78-year-old Swede stole a dinghy after a night out in the Danish town of Hellingsor and tried to row back to Sweden, but fell asleep halfway. When the man discovered he lacked the necessary funds to pay for the ferry from Hellingsgård to Hellingsborg in Sweden on Saturday, he decided to row the five kilometres across the Strait of Oresund that separates the two. He quickly grew tired and trusting fortune and the currents to see him safely home, took a snooze at the bottom of the boat, where Danish police later found him out at sea, still asleep. The strait is one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world. Police said the owner of the dinghy had decided not to press charges. And story number two also has Scandinavian origins. Stockholm. A heated debate raged in Sweden yesterday after an eight-year-old boy's failure to invite two classmates to his birthday party resulted in a complaint filed with the national parliament. Nearly 200 outraged comments had been posted on the website of the local southern Swedish daily Sidvenskan just two days after it reported on the events that followed the boy's decision to invite all but two of his classmates to his party. The policy at the boy's school in the southern town of Lund was that children, all the boys or all the girls, had to be invited to parties when invitations were handed out in class. When a teacher noticed that two children had been left off a party list, she confiscated all the invitations, the newspaper reported. The principal told Sidvenskan, two people in class had not been invited and that is not allowed. The ones who were not invited felt sad and left out. The birthday boy's father, meanwhile, decided to file a complaint with the Swedish parliamentary ombudsman insisting his son's rights had been trampled on. He told the paper, The two boys in question should not have been surprised when they were not invited. One of them did not invite my son to his birthday, and the other has bullied my son for six months. You don't invite your antagonists to a birthday party. Most of the comments posted on Sidvenskan's website appeared to take the father's side. The ombudsman is due to rule in the case on September 8. Story number 3. 9-11 canine sniffer hero to be cloned. Washington. A dog that sniffed out survivors from under the rubble of New York's World Trade Centre after the 2001 terror strikes is to be cloned, the California-based firm conducting the procedure said. Tracker, spelt T-R-A-K-R, a German shepherd who lives with his owner, James Symington, in Los Angeles, was picked by BioArts International as the most clone-worthy canine in a competition offering an owner a free chance to replicate their pet. Mr Symington said he and Tracker were among the first search and rescue teams to arrive at Ground Zero after the September 11 attacks and were responsible for locating the last human survivor under about nine metres of debris. Now aged 15, 
the dog no longer has use of its back legs because of a degenerative neurological disorder. According to BioArts, experts believe the condition may be linked to exposure to toxic smoke at the Trade Centre site. Tracker means the world to me, Mr Symington said. To know that part of him is going to live on is just beyond words. It's the greatest gift I've ever received. In the next month, BioArts said it would transport a sample of Tracker's DNA to the South Korean lab of its partner, the SOAM Biotech Research Foundation, and the clone could be ready by the end of the year. Meanwhile, Another South Korean genetic company has announced that clones of a US woman's beloved former pit bull terrier are due to be born within weeks. The cloning of Booga, who died in 2006, came months ahead of schedule thanks to technical progress, RNL Bio announced in a statement. Three clones of Booga have been conceived in two surrogate mother dogs, the company said. And to finish up, Two little quickies from the age.com.au website. Tourists may be sent back to Italy to remove graffiti etched into the Duomo of Florence after a search for culprits in Japan. A schoolteacher and several university students have been traced after the photographs of the graffiti on the Florentine landmark were circulated in Japan. And finally... Police in Maryland in the US are looking for a man who attacked a store clerk with a banana during an attempted robbery. When the clerk refused to give him money, he grabbed a banana and began hitting the store worker. When the clerk pulled out a knife, the man with the banana split. Well, that concludes episode 39 of Origins. And if you're interested, I've just released a new podcast called Mysteries Abound. It's only up to episode 1 at the moment, and what it is is mysterious stories like we have here on Origins, but in a half-hour format. I usually try to do three or four different stories looking at different mysteries from around the world. It's called Mysteries Abound, as I've just mentioned, and at the moment it's only on the TalkShoe site. But if you're looking for a link to it, it's in the show notes at www.origins.info. Once I get a few more episodes uploaded, I'll then try to list it on iTunes, as iTunes do prefer that you have a few episodes under your belt before they list it on their website. So if you're interested, it's on the TalkShoe site or the link at www.origins.info and... uh, you might find it interesting because it's a similar format to what I'm doing here in Origins.